Over the last four weeks, we've been discussing our five core purposes here at Bethany. We've already looked at and concluded what we believe worship is to be in the life of this congregation. And we've said, this is how we live. We are worshipers of God, and that affects everything we do. We've looked at evangelism. We said, this is what we do. We've been asked by God to go into our neighborhoods, our community, country, and continents, and spread the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We have looked at love, which is another core purpose, and we said, this is our motivation. If we want to go out and be disciples of Christ, if we want to evangelize the world, we need a motivation behind it, and that motivation has got to be the love of Jesus Christ that we've experienced. We've looked at disciple-making last week. We introduced you to uh, a new staff member we're bringing on, Evan Nave, to help us strengthen up and encourage the believers here at Bethany in disciple-making. And we said, disciple-making is our commission. It's something that we're dedicated to because in Matthew 28, Jesus is dedicated to it. And Jesus says, not only are we to go into all the nations, but we're to baptize them and we are to make disciples of them, teaching them to obey. And uh, we had expressed to you that we at Bethany, all of us, can do a better, better job of being disciple makers. And then today we finish up our core purpose and the look at it by, by checking out exactly what our attitude is. Our attitude is should be like Jesus Christ, who was humble enough to experience the cross, and yet he became a servant to all people. And if that was the attitude of the one in whom we're trying to emulate, Jesus Christ, I think that should be our attitude as well. And his attitude was one of humility and of service. And that should be our attitude as believers. There's nothing beneath us. If God calls us to it, we're going to do it because it's kingdom work. And so serving is our attitude. You know, probably no other story in all of the Bible encapsulates the cooperation of people in getting a big job done than the story you find in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And as that book begins to unfold, it starts with a very tragic event for the one that had authored that book, Nehemiah. It starts with his brother coming to him and saying that our hometown is in shambles, Jerusalem. It's been ravaged and it's been ruined. And this was a blow to a guy like Nehemiah that had a lot of hometown pride in his body. You know, the big news that took him down and really made his heart rethink why he was living was the news that his hometown was being taken over. It started first with the Babylonian Empire. You may recognize a name from the book of Daniel by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. In the Babylonian Empire, he came in and he ransacked the temple of Jerusalem that Solomon had built. He destroyed that temple. He took all the holy and dedicated things out of it and he captured them for himself. But not only did he take the things out of the temple that meant important things to the believers of God, he also took the people of God in captivity and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem and he ransacked it and he made the people disperse from it. Another interesting point about what King Nebuchadnezzar did, he took all the brightest and best men that were Jews who were believers in God. And that's why Daniel chapter 1 and 3 tells us that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were unbelievably important figures in the Jewish nation, but King Nebuchadnezzar took them away from their people and introduced them to the Babylonian Empire. But by the time we catch into Nehemiah's book and the things surrounding his life, that Babylonian Empire is done and gone away with, and there's no one left in Jerusalem but those that are not so bright, and they're the poorest of the poor, and they can't seem to repair the walls and get God's temple back in order again. And Nehemiah finds out about this. He finds out that the temple's in in shambles. He finds out that the city of Jerusalem and its walls are not fortified. He finds out that there's no protection for the people there. He finds out that the city of God 
has been ransacked and ruined. Now by this time, the Persians have taken over and they have defeated the Babylonians and the Persians have a new interest in the Israelites, God's people. They let them go and they free them from the captivity. But for 150 years, Jerusalem has been in a destructive state. No one has done anything like it. Kind of like a town in the Midwest where no one pays attention to the properties, no one pays attention to the homes, and they're all just left to rot. And someone comes up and says, that's not how I remember my hometown being. That's not the way we should teach and, and express to our children how we should take, God, take, take care of the things of God. After all, God's temple is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's God's holy city. And so Nehemiah, who was once living one way for himself, has this crushing moment and says, I need to do something about this. And so this rallying point begins to start amongst Nehemiah, guys like Ezra and the people of Israel to say, let's go back to our hometown and let's make sure that the things of God become important to us again. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. And this passage shows us how people work together to accomplish more than they could if just one person did it alone. And I want you to take notice of a four phrases that are found within this chapter. Now, we're not going to read the entire chapter today, but maybe as you go home, you could take it back and you can read it. There are some very difficult names that are found within it. But there are some phrases that are important that the author wants to point out. Phrases like next to him or next to them or after them or after him. That's the way in which the author is emphasizing that everybody was needed to get this job done. Everybody needed to pursue serving together. They had to take away their own interests and put the interests of God first. They had to take away their pride and they have to lower themselves to be humble. And there is purpose as we serve. These guys had a tremendous amount of purpose as they began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was this leader that rallied people to him, but he wasn't rallying to his personality. Nehemiah was rallying people to a purpose, a purpose that was bigger than them. Here was the purpose. The purpose was to restore in the lives of the people that God is important. Don't think of the story of Ezra or Nehemiah as someone building some walls and fortifying a city. There is so much more deeper context to the story of Nehemiah than that. This is all about making sure that God becomes the most important thing in your life. And then everything else can follow through. You know, the purpose of ministry, my ministry, the things that you do here around this congregation, the things you do in the community for Christ, the things that you do for Christ alone, they all really boil down to one thing. And that's not to make us feel good. And that's not to make a church grow. That's to glorify God. And some of you are looking for the purpose in life as if it's some kind of great mystery and you gotta go travel across the world to find an X somewhere in the ground, dig it up, and you'll find the treasure of the purpose of life. The Bible never made it that difficult to have a purpose in life. The purpose in life is that we all glorify God if we call ourselves children of God. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 31 says. It says, so whether you eat or you, whether you drink or with whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do you catch that? Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Now take a look at verse 1 with me in Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib, the priests, and his fellow priests went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and they set its doors in place. 
Now, I want you to know, it was no accident that they started with the Sheep Gate. As a matter of fact, the Sheep Gate was an important gate within the city of Jerusalem from the time that the temple was built within the city walls. The Sheep Gate was known as the Sheep Gate because that's where most of the sacrifices that went to the temple priests came through. You see, the sheep were the sacrifice for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And regular sacrifices were being offered, and those animals would travel through that gate because it was closest. It was at the northeast section of the wall, right next to the temple, and it became known as the Sheep Gate. And Nehemiah strategically says as a leader, let's repair that gate. Now, why do you think there's an importance to repairing that gate first? Because it put an emphasis on what was most important about the rebuilding. What was most important about the rebuilding was that God was going to be the first. God was going to be the one that we're doing this for. We're not rebuilding these walls for ourselves. We're rebuilding these walls for God because we want to worship here again in this temple. We want to bring sacrifices to God. We want to honor God. So the very first thing that they decide to rebuild is a portion of the wall that is best used for serving the Lord. I guess another way of saying that they built the sheep gate is to say they put God first in their serving. I think this is critical because so many times we make a, 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 a misjudgment of what is most important about being a Christian. And we find it a lot in the attitude at Bethany, and it's an attitude in which I would like to see dissipate, and our leadership would too. The attitude is that if I serve here, then God is impressed with my my labor. But that's not necessarily true. God's not so much impressed with your labor. He's impressed with your heart. And one of the things that we see that is becoming problematic within our congregation is a lot of you have been serving on Sundays, which is great and so valuable to the mission of this church, but you're not coming in for a worship service. Friends, as a spiritual leader, that breaks my heart. It breaks our elders' hearts. We don't know how to combat that, but to tell you from the pulpit that one of our expectations for all of you that are serving on Sunday morning is to take advantage of the opportunities that this congregation affords you. A couple of services. And take time, whether to wake up a little earlier to come to the 9 o'clock service or stay a little later to worship God at 1045. Friends, God's not impressed with your labor. He's impressed with your heart. And we need to remember work goes after Worship. Worship precedes work. There was unity, though, as they served. If you read the book of Nehemiah, if you know anything about it, they built that wall super fast, and they used everybody to get the job done. As a matter of fact, they built those walls in 52 days. That's pretty impressive. 52 days to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I want you to take notice with me of who God used to rebuild these walls and who served the Lord. Six ways you can serve well. Here's where it begins. It begins with leadership. Now, we're not having a leadership meeting here today. We have a couple of them per month. Uh, We have an elders meeting. We have a leadership team meeting. And in those meetings, it's always brought up that we are, as a leadership team, to set the example for the congregation. And in verse 1, do you notice who set the example for the rest of the workers? It was the priests. The priests began to rebuild the wall. Now, that was not normal for the priests to do that. See, the priests had sacred hands. God had called those priests that they were to do no other thing but to minister on behalf of the Lord. But for some reason, God said, it's okay to do this one thing and to rebuild the walls. 
I mean, these priests wore ornate garments nearly at all times. It was uh, very rare that you would catch them out of the ornateness of looking like a priest. There was prestige behind it. And do you catch what they're doing? They laid down their garments to pick up a wheelbarrow, to pick up a trowel, to begin to spread mortar along the bricks. Now, these guys are definitely not qualified for the job. They're just as qualified for it as I would be. But yet, they are put to the task of serving the Lord in this manner. Could they have easily backed away and said, hey, God, come on. I mean, we serve the Lord all the time in the temple. You want us to go out and you want to get our hands dirty? And God said, this is what I've laid on your heart. You do it. And so notice who took the pace of the team. It was the leadership, wasn't it? You know, if you ever find here at Bethany Christian Church that the leadership is behind you and not in front of you, you need to make that very vocal. I think one of the reasons why this church has experienced growth and has experienced movement is because the leadership have been in tune with God's leading and they've followed behind God and they've asked the people to follow behind them. Set the example, the Apostle Paul says, you follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And when our leadership, if you ever discover sometime that they fall out of that pattern, you need to make that very aware to people like me or elders that you might know because Leaders are not the exceptions. Leaders are the examples. Now, I'm going to tell my kids every time I drop them off at school, the van door opens up and I say, boys, I love you. And you remember now, you're the example, you're not the exception. Or I'll say things like, boys, I love you, but not everybody who you're going to come across today does. Or boys, I think you're special, but not everybody thinks you're special. That's true, isn't it? Leaders, You're the examples. You're not the exceptions. End of leadership meeting. The second thing is God desires to use everyone. The leaders need to set the pace. And as we begin to do some things around here and be setting up strategies for more growth, remember that the leaders need to be leading that and not just saying, you do it and we'll just kind of watch. But secondly, God desires to use everyone. Take a look at verse 8 with me of Nehemiah chapter 3. Uziel, son of Harachiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, uh, made repairs next to that. Now, it's no mistake that Nehemiah points out their job descriptions, and he realizes, look, they're putting mortar and brick on the wall, and who's doing it? Well, a goldsmith and a perfume maker. A little bit out of their job description, right? They didn't go to tech college to repair walls. They went to tech college on how to be a goldsmith and perfume maker. And God lays it on their heart. Something big needs to happen here. You need to do something outside of yourself, outside of your comfort zone. And you need to begin to do some acts of service that you never thought you would do. I want you to notice some key words here. Look at some areas of the scripture where the word section is used. You can find it 13 different times in Nehemiah chapter 3. It talks about the sections that the people were in charge of, that everybody was given an area to serve with them. This is important because here at Bethany, we believe in gift-based ministries, that God has given us gifts through the Holy Spirit. Every single one of you that has come to Christ and has received the Holy Spirit has at least one gift, and that's not for your profit. That's for the gain of the congregation, for the gain for the cause of Christ. If you're a Christian and you're not using that gift, you're just quenching the Holy Spirit and you're shutting off the power and the movement in your life that He wants to do. You know, Romans chapter 12, verse 6 says, we have different gifts, 
according to the grace that's been given us. All of us have different gifts. All of us do different things. The Apostle Paul says we're like a body. All of us have different functions. But to make the body complete, we all have to work on the section that we're a part of. We all have to work on the part of the wall that God has put in front of us. Now, we're going through a fundamental change at Bethany right now. A fundamental change in the sense of how we have a philosophy on how to serve. The fundamental change is this. Just last year, we would have this time offered you a servant book. Remember those? Find your spot books. And through those books, you would have looked through them. You would have discovered some entry-level ministries, perhaps a hundred of them. You would have been given a card and checkmarked the cards, and you would have gone through them. And so many of you signed up for 10 or 15 ministries. And we feel good about it on the day that we sign up. But as the list goes out throughout the year and 365 days pass by, you're saying, why did I sign up for 15 different ministries? I can't, I can't do this. This is too much time, too much effort. I'm here all the time. And you're wore out by it. And the fundamental change is this. We're not asking you to do 15 different things. I'm asking you to do one or two things on a committed scale with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some of you guys are fantastic greeters and you need to be doing it more than six times uh, a year. Some of you are phenomenal in caring for children in the nursery like no other can do it. And you need to set the tone and lead by example. And maybe for you, it's being in there more and making that your dedicated ministry and not doing three other things outside of that. See, as the church grows, there are more hands to complete the work. And what got us here two years ago, about two, three hundred different people, is not going to take us where we need to be. And the philosophy of serving needs to change. If we can all shoulder the load, then the work won't be that difficult and burdensome. But here's the thing. We want you to be working on a section of ministry that is best suited for you and that hits your gifts. And that's why we have guys like Tom Watson on staff to help plug you into those. It's not just a matter of hit and miss and trying to find out where you might serve. We have a guy here that will walk that route with you and help you discover certain ministries that will best fit you, identify with your gifts, that you can be passionate in, and that you can be committed to so that we can count on you. Here's the third thing. Some people refuse to serve. And that's true. I mean, what happened nearly two, 3,000 years ago is true today. There's just people with personalities that say, I'm just not going to do it. That stuff is beneath me. Look at verse 5, chapter 3 of Nehemiah. It says, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulder to the work under their supervisors. Tekoa was a town about 11 miles outside of Jerusalem. Many of those men probably commuted to work or set up tents outside and were away from their families. But you know what? The nobles called in sick day after day. But that didn't stop the people from doing the work. Even though their leadership was a terrible example, the men of Tekoa continued to build the wall, but the nobles were too proud to submit themselves to the supervisors. Did you catch that? And they just wouldn't shoulder the work. You know that phrase in Hebrew, shoulder the work, is as if you were putting a yoke over oxen and that you were in control of them. And the nobles didn't want anybody controlled over them. Which makes me wonder, if you're not wanting anybody to have control over you, if you find it difficult to be managed by a boss or difficult to be led by church leadership, are you letting Christ control you? 
I mean, do you have a spirit of humility or a spirit of pride? Are you one that is rebellious or are you one that's going to rejoice when there is positive godly leadership leading over you? These men, it didn't matter who was over them. They had too much pride within them to be ruled by anybody and to be told what to do. And I, I can't think of any more rewarding experience than to do the work of the Lord. You know, my wife and I have a couple of things that we, we go by, and they're not set in stone, but if we're boxed in with time and someone asks us to do something that isn't kingdom-driven, our answer is going to be no. We want to put our time into kingdom investments because our time's limited on earth. My wife and I, we don't have a ton of money, and the money that we do have, we're not going to give to a politician. I don't think they deserve it. I'm going to give my money to kingdom work. I'm going to give my money where it's going to make a difference. And I can't think of any better thing to do but to devote myself, my resources, and the things that God's put me in charge of to God's kingdom. And friends, if you look around this place, some of the happiest Christians we've got around here are the ones that are involved in serving week after week, day after day. And some of the grumpiest Christians we have in this place are the pew potatoes that don't do a whole lot. Here's the fourth thing. Some serve more than others. Now, we understand that, right? Some refuse to serve. They just don't want to put themselves under the cause of Christ. They just want to sit back. Some do a lot of work. It used to be said that 20% do 100% of the the labor. Maybe in some churches. Bethany has never had that percentage that badly. So many of you do so much around this place. You do so much in the community in the name of Christ. You do so much in the congregation for Christ. And you do so much just for the cause of Christ that I don't even know what the percentages are. At one time, we were over 70% of the congregation who was in serving at the church. But we all know there can be things that can be done. And we all know that there's people that step up to a greater degree. Remember the men of Tekoa that we talked about in verse 5? Take a look in verse 27. Walk down there with me. It says, next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired, what does it say? Another section. That means they got done with their job. It means whatever section they were given to do, they did it well, even though their nobles were no help. And they, I assume, went to Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, we've completed the job. It's done well. They inspected the walls. Everything looked well, looked like it was fortified. And Nehemiah says, Would you be willing to take another section? And these guys probably said, you better believe it, we're ready to take another section. That's why we came to you. We're just looking for more to do around here. Now, some of you, this makes sense because some of you, like Jesus taught, are five talent people. You've got a lot of gifts and you have a lot to offer. And for some of you who are one talent, two talent people, you you don't understand this kind of philosophy because you're given all that you have. And that makes sense. Not everybody in this room are five talent people. Not everybody in this room are like the men of Tekoa that say, I finished the work and I want more to do. But let me tell you what I want you to walk away from and the, the, the idea that I want you to remove from your mind. That is, once you've done something in the church, you've retired from it. Once you've done something for Christ, you won't do it again. You won't even think about it. This idea of, I've put enough time in, I've served my guts out years ago, I mean, I was a Sunday school teacher for 20 years. Isn't that something? That is marvelous. That is something. But what if you were a Sunday school teacher for 40 years? Oh, well done. 
good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now here are many more things. If you take a look through Nehemiah 3, you look at verse 4, there was a section that was added uh, by a group of people. Uh, Meshulam had completed one part and then he decided to take on more. Uh, There were Uriah, the sons of uh, Hakaz, who repaired another section and they began to take on more. I mean, throughout the scriptures of Nehemiah, you find people that say, I've done my work and I want to do more. Can you imagine if that were our attitude for the cause of Christ? Not serving in the church, just for the cause of Christ. God, I, I want to do, do more. I want to I be able to give more of my time to kingdom work. I want to be able to give more of the resources you've put in my life over to you. What if that were our attitude? God, give me more to do. Isn't that so opposite of how we think? We're always thinking, God, if my life could be peaceful, could you just open up my schedule? But what if we all said, Lord, give us more to do? You know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 47, Jesus addresses his disciples, and here's the question he asks. He says, as he looks to secular society, he says, what are you doing more than others? Have you ever thought that way? Like, how is Christ in my life making any kind of a difference? How do I look different than the guy who's not a believer but has a lot of high morals? How do I look any different? Am I doing more because Christ is in my life? Or am I trying to find more peace and comfort because Christ is in my life? Am I trying to look out for the causes of Christ? Or am I trying to find security alone in Jesus and not service in Christ? Well, some serve more than others, and some serve with passion. And in this entire bit of Scripture, in Nehemiah 3 and following, you find mentions of people who are doing work zealously. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 3, it says next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. He was zealous in his work. That means he had a passion for it. Actually, the Hebrew word means he had a fire that was within him to do this work, that he had a fire underneath him. Have you ever been a part of a work crew that was lazy? It's contagious, isn't it? I remember working in a warehouse, running a forklift, and our supervisor wanted a nap morning long. Well, it became very contagious, and all the rest of the workers would nap as well. And I began to look at it and say, well, you know what? They're all napping. I don't have anything to do. I might as well just kick back here on the forklift. Laziness can be contagious, But have you been on the opposite side of it where someone has just lit a fire into themselves and they're shoveling away or they're doing the work and hammering and nailing and you're thinking, I better step it up here. I don't want to be put to shame. I don't want to look like the lazy guy on the crew and that whole crew is able to work hard and strong throughout the day because someone has set the tone and someone has set the pace. When there's someone that serves with passion, it becomes contagious and people want to have the same kind of zeal and fire lit under them because they really want to do something well because Others around them are doing something well. When our attitude becomes we're serving the Lord and we're doing it passionately, that's going to be contagious to those who walk into this building for the first time. And they're going to find that our culture is about humility and passion more than it is about performance and pride. Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. Don't be lacking in this stuff. Keep your spiritual fervor. Serve the Lord with it. Use those passions to serve the Lord. Okay, here's the last thing. Some served 
together as families. Now, my family struggles in this area. And I don't know if it's because my kids are young or because I preach here and have other duties that my wife just is not going to be a part of. She's not going to join me on the platform. But some of you do this well. You do it really well. And that is you take your whole household and you find an area to serve Christ in. And maybe it's a ministry that you're plugged in here at church that all of you can do. But I think as families, we need to do this better. As couples, we can find things that link us up together. And if Christ can't link us up, who can? And I think there is an importance in sharing this as a family. In serving the Lord together as one. You know, one of the ways that we are trying to promote this a little better at Bethany is the way in which we are going to approach VBS this year. And so what we've decided to do is a thing called Neighborhood VBS. And a win for us is having a VBS at someone's home, maybe 20, 30 homes, and they're scattered around Washington, and people that just say, I want to be a host home for a VBS, you invite some people around your neighborhood in, you have a cooking team, they come in and cook and grill out, you get to host and say hi to the two or three families that are there, and maybe there's seven or eight children in your backyard, and they're doing a craft about the story, and maybe learn a song about the story. Someone awkwardly taught them the Bible story and a catchphrase that goes along with it. And then we say, we'll see you back tomorrow. You say, but what about the lights? What about the smoke machine? What about the dancers on stage? Yeah, what about them? Do we need that? Wouldn't it be great if families started thinking in terms of neighborhoods and serving their neighbors and loving their neighbors and opening up their homes to their neighbors? And then the church gives them an opportunity to take one step in that direction. As a church, we're committed to impacting our city, our county, our country, and continents. But it's got to start at home. The attitude of serving starts at home. Dads, if you're prideful, get involved with Jesus and let him squash your pride and be a humble man full of compassion and grace because you're going to set the tone for the next generation. And who knows, some of your kids, even though you're not, might become a leader in the church and we don't need prideful leaders. John chapter 15, 16, Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And that word appoint means that he has strategically placed you in a particular position. Some of you are wondering why you live in Washington, Indiana. From time to time I do. And I have to remember that God has appointed me to this particular area. Friends, when you begin to understand how God has placed you in the right place at the right, with the right people, you begin to understand that you can do great things with God behind you. You're an ambassador for Christ in your neighborhood and in your job. And you need to start being bold, knowing that God stands with you. And if God stands with you, who in the world can be against you? So here's what I want you to take away from this. Remember that nothing has ever been done for God without hard work. 
Nothing has ever been done for God without hard work. And God uses people. I don't know why he's decided to do that. He could do it himself, but God doesn't need us. He wants us to be involved in this process. He wants leaders to be the example. He wants people to step up and serve. He wants families to link together. He wants us to do this with passion. And he wants us to take a section and take over and take charge on it, led by the example of Jesus Christ. You know, if you were to read Nehemiah, there is one word that stands out amongst all the rest, and it's the word repair. It's an important word to Nehemiah because he wants us to understand that he didn't build the wall from new. He built the wall from something that was old. And the word that we have for that is called restoration, that we take something that was and we remake it so that it is a new thing. But you know, when I meet with people, I find that sometimes people are disappointed with what Jesus has done in their life. Maybe sometime during life they were growing up or they went to college or they went through a marriage and the marriage got rough and they got divorced or they had kids and they bought into this version of Christianity that churches, even churches like us, has been selling for years. And that is, if you add Jesus, things will be better. If you just add Jesus, if you upgrade to Jesus, your marriage will be better. If you upgrade to Jesus, you won't have financial problems. You'll be able to climb out of that. If you just add a little bit of Jesus, you'll be able to be a better parent to your kids. If you add, It's like going to McDonald's and you're just going through the drive-thru and you say, yeah, I'll take a marriage and then supersize me to Jesus. But what quickly happens is we realize that this formula of marriage plus Jesus, parenting plus Jesus, job plus Jesus doesn't work. And some of you who have bought into that version of Christianity that the church has been selling, you're wondering, is it me? Or is it Jesus? My marriage isn't better. My job doesn't seem to give me purpose. I don't seem to be able to manage these kids. I can't get a handle on my finances. My addiction's still with me. It must be Jesus. The problem with that is you give up hope on what Jesus can do in your life. And you no longer think he's in the restoring business. Because whatever it is you've come to, the problem plus Jesus hasn't worked out for you. But friends, we have messed it all up. Jesus is not here to fix you. Jesus is not here to fix you. He's here to forgive you. Jesus is here to bring you freedom. Freedom from all the things that have shackled you back and kept you in captivity of sin. And when you find freedom in Christ and forgiveness in Christ, then you can pursue all those things that you thought you were going to upgrade when you brought Jesus into your life. When you find freedom in Christ, when you find forgiveness in Christ, that's when your life begins to change. And that's when that begins to ripple out to all those other things that you want Jesus to help you in. And here's where it begins. Like last week, it doesn't begin by trying. It begins by dying. And saying, Lord, take control. Would you be in charge of my life? I want to be obedient to your teachings like I've never been obedient to you before. I want to break away from my old life and I want to give you the controls. I want to give you my all. Friends, when you come to the Lord like that, heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll find that your life will be rebuilt 
and renewed and restored. And today, what are you looking for Jesus to do for you? Are you looking for him to fix you? He's in the forgiving business. He's in the freedom business. And if you haven't been forgiven through Christ, if you haven't found freedom in Christ, there's no fix that's going to happen. If you haven't submitted to Christ and died with Christ, all the trying in the world isn't going to help you. The call of Christ is pretty simple. If you want to find new life and find it more abundantly, give your life to me. Put yourself to death in the baptistry. Rise a new life of forgiveness and freedom. And now live for me.